Hi, welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? All right. Hey, everybody. So today we've got a special guest with us, uh, Mr. Lars Cade, who is a young earth creationist turned atheist. And we're going to have a pretty detailed and fun conversation today. And we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics. And we had so much information, we actually had to split this into two episodes. So this is going to be part one, where we're going to talk a little bit with Lars about his deconversion story from young earth creationist to atheist. We're going to talk a little bit about faith and evolution. And then we're going to get a little nerdy. Actually, Lars is going to get a little nerdy and we're going to try to keep up with them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if you are knowledgeable in science, then you probably will have no problem with this episode. But at times it does get kind of heavy. So if you're new to science or if you are a former young earth creationist or former fundamentalist, just hang in there. If you need to rewind 15 or 30 seconds to listen to it again, just hang in there. You'll get it. What I appreciate about Lars is that he chooses his words very carefully. He's very precise in his terminology. He wants to be as accurate as possible. So without further ado, we'll kick it off into our conversation with Lars. Thank you, Lars, for being on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I could literally talk about this all day, so hopefully I can keep it short tonight. Lars, you are essentially what I like to call a self-taught guru, right, on the topics of evolutionary biology, young earth creationism, and intelligent design. So we're going to dig into these topics a little bit. Susie and I are both super interested in science, and we're always looking to find people who know more than we do about a given topic. And we've also got a little milestone. Today is actually our 10th episode. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't realize that. Finally a double digits. So. Yay. So yeah, tell us a little bit about your faith background. You don't have to go into great detail. If people want to hear your full deconversion story, we'll post the links to those in the notes. But tell us a little bit about how you came to be a heathen like the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) Sure thing. Uh, So uh, I was raised in a pretty strict fundamentalist church. Uh, My parents are both part of the Plymouth Brethren group. They're not necessarily that well known outside of their own circles. Uh, They were started by John Nelson Darby in the 1800s and have always been a very odd blend of fundamentalism, old-fashionedism without going full Amish. They have things like the covering of heads for the women, of course, not the men, in the church. And uh, they tend to have fairly dim views of the use of instruments for music. And they're mostly characterized or at least especially noted for their worship meetings in which they have no set leader and uh, any man in the church. And again, always the men (laughs) as they see fit or quote, feel led by the spirit unquote, can share a thought, a hymn or a passage from the Bible with the rest of the congregation. Uh, So that, that was the background I grew up in. One of the very first things I remember asking my mom when we started homeschooling, because of course I was homeschooled uh, all the way from kindergarten through high school was how old is the earth? I I was not more than five. I might not have even been five at this point. She told me, oh, it's about 10,000 years. Okay, sure. I'm four. I'm asking the biggest authority figure in my life Mm -hmm. and I have no reason to doubt her. But I I remember that moment uh, looking up at my mom, which is interesting because she's only like five one (laughs) and uh, hearing that answer that and in some ways, I guess you could say that really set the course for my learning later. And growing up, we went to a Ken Ham back to Genesis seminar before Answers in Genesis was fully formed. Uh, we went to a, I believe it was a Dwayne Gish and Michael Shermer debate. I didn't actually pay that much attention, so I didn't really catch much of what they were saying, but it really instilled in me the idea that evidence could support a view and that young earth creationism was supported by the evidence. And I, you know, I was also a preacher's kid. We lived in the building where the church met. So I never had an option of not going to church. Went to uh, Awana clubs at a different church. I don't know if you're familiar with Awana. It's a children's yeah. uh, church thing that sort of tries to be like the scouts, like the scouts. but yeah. much less outdoor stuff and much more scripture memorization, which I happen to be extremely good yeah. at. <laughs> and in fact, I have a, uh, I have their highest award sitting on my wall right up here. Nice. Um, yeah. You know what? It, I, I earned that over the course of 10 years. I'm not going to get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well. That's right. It's a reminder of how far you've come. It, it really is. 
you know, it, it's also a reminder in case anyone says, oh, you're never real a Christian. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I have something that says otherwise. Right. <laughs> I was a cubby. You can like do no, the whole I actually thing. started in Sparks. I did all three Sparks books in one year. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. The blue vest with the patches. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Oh, yeah. It's like it's like Boy Scouts, but not as cool. You don't learn not anything cool. to help you survive. It's like only to help you survive fundamentalism. Not even survive much. the rapture. No, no. no. Oh well, you can you can be raptured, so that's that's good. Oh, yeah, no, no one survives the rapture. Thing. That's right. right. <laughs> yeah, you're either left behind or you're caught up. I mean, yeah. Clearly, I still don't have a handle on what the rapture is. <laughs> it, it's it's bullshit, is what it is. Oh, very much so. That's what you were looking for. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, I never actually had rapture anxiety. I was always very sure that I was a Christian, so it never bothered me that I would be left behind. Lucky you. I, I realize that's somewhat of a rarity in people raised in fundamentalist circles, so I'm I'm pretty glad for that. But I did praise band ministry at another church, you know, went on uh, missions trips. My parents met each other as missionaries in Colombia and South America and moved the family to Belgium when I was about four months old, where I spent the next three and a half years. Uh, and I used to actually be able to speak French. Can't anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> oh. You know, if you want bona fides, I've got the Christian bona fides. You got them. Went to college close enough to my family's place that I just kept going to their church uh, while I was in college. So that wasn't an opportunity for me to break away. Uh, even after getting my own place, I was still close enough to them that I kept going there and kept going there, you know, for a long time. That was, that was the life. I was sure that Christianity was true and happy to be a part of it. It wasn't really until I got married that I started living really differently. Granted, as soon as I went to college, I basically stopped reading the Bible because I'd read it five times already by then. <laughs> but, you know, I was still very sure that it was all true and got my own place had a roommate who also went to the church where I did praise band. So it was just a self-reinforcing environment that I had myself in. I just assumed everything was true and didn't bother to check the foundations of my beliefs. Was that a Christian university or a secular? It was not. It was secular university. Okay. But surprisingly, I did not really get challenged on my faith much there. Yeah, The people there were so tolerant that I told them, hey, I'm a Christian. I believe this. They're like, okay, that's your thing. And that was it. <laughs> that's like one of those falsehoods that they tell you in fundamentalism too, that like, if you go to a secular school, you're going to have to defend your faith like all day, every day. No, that was not my experience either. No, most of the rest of the world doesn't really give a crap about what you believe until you start infringing on, you know, people's life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, you know. Lars, when you uh, said that you weren't questioning your faith at all, is that because you were just so convinced it was true? Or is that because it was kind of instilled in you do not question. Questioning is bad. Both. Very much both. Okay. So because I was told that it was definitely true and the few questions I had as a kid had been shut down rather quickly with answers that in retrospect, I didn't find very satisfying, but since these were the true answers, I figured I just had to go with it. If right. I'm not supposed to lean on my own understanding after all. So I didn't for a while. I just assumed that since all these brilliant people at answers in Genesis and the like, knew what they were talking about and knew how the faith was true, then that was good enough for me. I didn't have to check it out for myself. That is one of the things that really is indicative of fundamentalism, intellectual laziness. Mm -hmm. You tend to assume that the people higher up in the chain know what they're talking about. If they have it all together, then so can you, and you can rely on their knowledge for your own faith. It's a sort of a perverted inversion of the real reliance and experts that we all have to do in real life. Mm, yeah. So I managed to get all the way into adulthood, living on my own. And one thing I didn't have was a girlfriend. I had unsurprisingly not been well set up for romantic pursuits. I know. <laughs> imagine that purity culture in the nineties, not setting someone up for romantic pursuits. It's astonishing, but it's true. Right. In uh, 2007, I finally had had enough. I'm like, screw this. I'm going to try online dating. Now that was as I recall it now, and maybe not really true, but as I recall now, that was the first time I ever took a leap of non-faith. That's where <laughs> I decided to do something for myself on my own, instead of casting all my cares upon God and trusting God, trusting God to fulfill, to give me the desires of my heart. Right. And it worked. Uh, within a few months, I'd met the woman who's now my wife. Uh, we hit it off and kept up a long distance relationship uh, for 15 months before we got married. Ever since then, looking back, I can realize we weren't living in faith. We took careful actions and made plans to get the outcomes that we wanted, but we didn't realize it at the time. It wasn't until 2013 or 2014, I can't remember the exact date, I saw my brother share on Facebook a link called Top 10 Signs You Don't Understand Evolution at All from a now defunct blog called The God of Evolution. It was a 
blog run by a Christian who also accepted evolution and wanted to help others do the same. My brother, as I realized later, was a bit ahead of me in the deconstruction and deconversion path. And so I knew enough at that point to know that if I clicked on that, I would have to acknowledge that I understood evolution because I have a really good memory. And despite trying to mentally censor any mention of evolution or deep time or anything like that, it had still kind of soaked in. So I clicked on it and sure enough, it was exactly as I expected. I understood evolution well enough to say that I knew it was true. And it was probably the most terrifying thing I've ever done. I know clicking on a link sounds super scary, but you know, imagine like pressing play on the video for the ring. Right? <laughs> that, that's, that's what this felt like. For or it's me. like taking the blue pill or the red pill. Which one? Yeah. It's taking the red pill. Yeah. As soon as I realized I understood enough about evolution to acknowledge it as true, I knew that I had to make up for all those years of not learning it. And I started what I now refer to as rage learning. And it's <laughs> a thing that a lot of people escaping fundamentalism find themselves doing. They realize that they have missed out on some important parts of life and then overcompensate by learning everything they can about it to the point where they probably know more than most people do who got a normal education. <laughs> That's where I am now. Uh, I spent, well, I have continued to spend uh, the next uh, eight years studying evolutionary biology, cosmology, geology, paleontology, all these many different sciences, and for that matter, biblical interpretation that was kept from me as a fundamentalist young earth creationist. Now, if you spend any time on the internet looking up creationism debunking, it tends to come fairly closely paired with anti-religious arguments as well. Even though I tried to keep myself from looking at those because I was going to try to keep my faith and prove Ken Ham wrong that evolution is not a slippery slope to atheism. <laughs> Just like with evolution, a lot of it still seeped in. I also at the same time was learning how to know things at all. What does it mean to know something? What is the philosophy of science? What is good epistemology? Epistemology being the study of how we know things. Mm -hmm. The more I learned of this, the more I realized that I'd be a coward if I didn't apply it to my own faith beliefs that I was trying to hang on to. And as I did, sure enough, everyone that I shined under the light of epistemology crumbled like a house of cards. Mm -hmm. And you know, within a few years, I had no vestige of faith left. To be fair, as soon as I realized evolution was true, my faith went from like 50% or maybe a little higher down to like five. So you were you were at 50% or around there before well, you even- I, I realized that in retrospect. I would have thought okay. it was 90 or better. Okay. Or I should say better, 90 or more. I, I didn't really realize that I was fostering doubts, Yeah. but you know, my political opinions had been changing because mm -hmm. of all these things that had been taught to me as absolute truth that we should base our politics on. Turns out not to be so true. Right. Mm -hmm. So this gradual erosion of these various foundational truths, quote unquote, that I've been raised with had set the stage for me to be ready to shed the rest of them. I just didn't realize it yet. Mm -hmm. yes. So yeah, my actual level of faith was closer to 50%. If you'd asked me, I'd have told you it was probably 80 or better. Either way, whatever, whatever level you want to call it at, it dropped to like less than 10% overnight. <laughs> yeah. And then the next several years were just a slow erosion of what little there was uh -huh. um, until by about 2019, I realized, no, nah, not even 2019, 2018, I realized I had no real belief left, but I was too afraid to tell anybody. And we kept attending church. Uh, we'd switched churches uh, shortly after I figured out evolution was real when our when the church we had been going to started to use Answers in Genesis for their vacation Bible school curriculum. Oh, and we were like, fuck that. <laughs> of course, I didn't say yeah. that. Uh, I didn't start, I didn't use any words like that until after officially deconverting. Right. Um, Permission to curse granted. Awesome. Uh, I've, I've heard your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we switched churches to try to find a place where they'd be a little more open to a broader range of doc broader range of doctrines, I should say, and tried to find some way to hang on to faith. We were offered the book, the reason for God by Tim Keller, by one of the pastors there. And that had the opposite effect of what he was hoping. I think uh, the main central argument of that book is look deep inside yourself. You already know there's a God. That's it. That's the entire <laughs> central argument. It's, of it's the like, book. look at the rocks. The rocks yeah. will tell you. Yeah. The rocks cry yeah. out. Yeah. I'm like, that's it. This is the world's greatest apologist, supposedly. <laughs> And this is his central argument. Yeah. I, I was not impressed. That's such an ironic argument anyway for an apologist, because the whole premise of Christianity is that you don't know shit without God. So how could you look inside yourself and know that there's a God if 
if you look yeah. inside yourself and, and there's nothing in there but evil without God. It's such a terrible, that's even bad circular reasoning. It's like it's nonsense from every <laughs> angle. And my wife and I were pretty appalled. We kept going because we were both the oldest children in our family. We were very much raised to be rule followers. And it's just our natural temperament. It's just how we are. Even though neither of us particularly liked going to church, we just kept going. Finally, what got us to kick the habit was, like many other people, COVID quarantine. Mm -hmm. Our church stopped doing in-person services and God damn, do we like being able to sleep in on Sundays? Holy yes. shit, that was awesome. Yeah. And <laughs> I secretly loved it. I couldn't tell my husband, but I was like, oh, yes. Like when they shut down yeah. another week, I was like, yes, another week. <laughs> I know. It was amazing. <laughs> Bedside Baptist is like the best church on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm a little ashamed that we weren't more upfront. But again, we were still trying to figure out where we stood. And I was afraid to bring it up to my wife because. I wasn't sure quite where she was standing and I didn't want to shape what faith she had or that of whatever faith my kids had. And she didn't want to bring it up to me because she knew that if we both acknowledge that we didn't believe, we'd have to tell our families, especially my family, who as mentioned, runs a church. We kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, a friend of mine who you may have seen in the Deconversion Anonymous Facebook group, Jimmy, uh, he had been my Bible study leader back in 2006 he messaged me on Facebook and said, hey, where are you standing on matters of faith these days? I didn't want to tell him until I'd told my family. So I did. I told my wife that night and uh, we stayed up until about two in the morning talking about this. It was the best feeling I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Letting go of all that cognitive dissonance, all that weight of guilt, of trying to live my life according to things that are not true, dropping it all at once felt to me like what I've heard many people who convert to Christianity describe as the feeling they have when they convert. And really what I think it is, it's that euphoria of finding and understanding your own identity. And that can happen in a religious or non-religious context. But when you feel like I know who I am and I like it, that's a wonderful feeling that many of us deconverts can really understand in a way we never could while religious. Yeah. She said to me, I finally feel like myself. And that's, I think, the best way to put it. Yeah. You posted that on Facebook the other day. And I really identified with that. Yeah. I just I just had this feeling of being exhilarated. It, it is. It's an amazing feeling. It really puts a lie to the claim that they tell you in fundamentalist circles how atheists are always miserable and dour because they have nothing to look forward to. <laughs> right. It's not true. I could go into a long rant about how <laughs> terrible heaven would be, even if it were right. real. But yeah. that's yeah. not what this particular podcast is about. There's a whole swath of Christians that actually do believe in evolution. From your standpoint, you tried to hold on to that thing too, your faith and believing in evolution. Is it even possible to really be a Christian and then believe in evolution? So Christians absolutely can accept evolution. I don't like to say believe in. That sounds like they're just believing with faith. And right. mm, yeah. evolution, while there are certainly people who essentially accept it on faith, they just heard that it's true and they're like, okay. Sure. The difference between evolution and creationism is that you can base your understanding of evolution on evidence. It doesn't have to be on faith. Whereas creationism has to be accepted on faith. You just right. have to accept it because someone told you somewhere or you feel internally that it's true. So yes, Christians absolutely can accept evolution as can people of any religion or none. It's one of those facts of the universe that you can accept it or not. It doesn't really affect the reality of the situation. Most Christians can indeed find a way to square that with their faith. Okay. But like, do you think that if you believe or if you accept evolution as fact, which I think it, that is a good distinction between belief and acceptance, would you equate that to the same way someone accepts the fact of gravity or this element does this or us, any other natural phenomenon that's accepted in common, common knowledge? Absolutely. If you pardon the big words here, epistemic status of evolutionary theory, or in other words, how true it is, how true it's understood to be based on the evidence is right up there with gravity or atoms or the fact that the planets orbit the sun. Actually, physicists and biologists will often tell you that evolution is on a slightly better footing than gravity, because we know that gravity does not apply, even if we're talking about general and special relativity, does not apply in all situations. Whereas as far as we can tell, evolutionary theory applies to all known life. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that is as true as the idea that matter is made of atoms. So if you accept the evidence that says matter is made of atoms and the methods used to acquire and analyze that evidence, you really don't have any good basis for rejecting evolution because it's built on the same scientific methods and 
application of philosophical principles to that evidence to arrive at a conclusion. Can we talk about your Facebook group, Answers to Answers in Genesis? Sure. Okay. I am not the founder of that group, but I am one of the administrators there. I joined it because I was so interested in learning about how Christians believe in evolution and believe their theology. And I have to say, I still have not quite figured it out. Let me tell you how it is in my mind, and then I want you to maybe explain to me how they think about it. So in my mind, evolution and theology can't mix because there's the doctrine of original sin, which is the two first people, Adam and Eve. And with evolution, there are no two first people. So if there are no two first people, there's no original sin. There's no need to be saved from anything. So there's no need for Jesus and Christianity just falls apart. Yeah. That particular view of Christianity definitely does fall apart with evolution. Uh, there were no two first humans, but there are many other understandings of Christianity. Among the, the Christians that answers to answers in Genesis and all those who hold similar views, you will generally not find the idea of original sin being taught, rather that everyone is condemned for their own sin. And that Adam and Eve are archetypical mythical characters rather than real historical individuals. They represent all of us. Every man and every woman in their theology has in fact sinned. In some way, they have fallen short of the glory of God and are thus justly deserving of punishment. Okay. Setting aside that that, that does not reflect well on the character of God, right. that he would deem anyone deserving of punishment for disobeying arbitrary commands, but <laughs> that is the view more commonly taken by the Christians who have taken the time to think through the implications of evolution and theology. Okay, that definitely helps. However, I'm still getting hung up on the whole, like you said, we're deserving of punishment for just being the way that we evolved to be. Yeah, that is an inescapable injustice of Christianity, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, God is justified in condemning people for disobeying God's commands. One of the realizations I had as I was leaving faith behind was that sin is not immoral. And to people well out of that way of thinking, it seems rather obvious. But when you're taught your entire life to equate sin, the disobedience of God's commands, with immorality, which is the failure to meet moral goals, you don't realize that there doesn't necessarily have to be any correspondence between them. And in fact, if you look at the commands that God gives in the Bible, ostensibly, most of them are pretty immoral. Uh, we would not want to live <laughs> under those commands. If someone commanded us to, for example, take your only son to the top of the mountain and kill him because you love this God so much, we'd say, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the inherent injustice of Christianity. It says that everyone is guilty, either if you take the original sin view or if you just take the individual sin view, that failing to abide by the terms of a contract that you didn't sign yeah. made for arbitrary reasons by someone whose entire claim to morality is might makes right is the basis for the the need for salvation. You just summed it all up right there. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's a good way to describe salvation. It's like, it's not a gift. Like how would, from an evolutionary standpoint, you even rationalize the idea of sin because you're just following the natural order of things. Yeah. Like at what point along the spectrum did we become responsible for our sin? They actually have an answer for that. Oh, it's what usually is it? that the story of Adam and Eve, while not necessarily strictly historical, does represent the first time that God revealed himself to humanity to give the moral guidance and thus the knowledge of good and evil that would give people the opportunity to enjoy heaven, or if they fail, to be punished by either hell or some sort of divine punishment. Eternal conscious torment of hell is, again, not as popular among such Christians. Mm -hmm. If you put as much thought into your theology as you have to to try to square it with evolution, you're probably also going to get rid of eternal conscious torment as a punishment because you realize that cannot be squared with a loving God. Yeah, that's, that's true. That makes sense, yeah. Okay, so last question about this. Sure. When you were examining your epistemology for accepting evolution and believing in Christianity, it seems like the people in, in the group, the Facebook group, they are fine with accepting evolution. But what is stopping them from taking that next step that you took where they examine their epistemology because they're doing it for evolution. They're, they're saying, do I have good evidence to accept this claim? Yes, I do. Now, why aren't they looking at Christianity to say, do I have enough evidence to accept Christianity and making a determination? Or have they, and they think there is evidence? Yes, to all of the above. There's a wide variety of people in that group, all the way from pretty fundamentalist Christians who accept evolution, all the way up through people who don't accept any religious claims at all. So I can't answer for all of them, but I can't answer for me. For me, I was trying to find some way to accept the tenets of the Christian faith as true, because when you raise your entire life to think that this is the way, the truth, and the life, you want to hang on to it, uh, especially when, at least like me, truth is one of your primary motivators. 
and I realize it's not that way for everyone. And I don't want to disparage those who are more interested in, for example, human relationships. That's another primary motivator. It's just not as big a one for me as the truth is. I was trying to find a way to square the epistemology of science with that of religion. And I found eventually that I couldn't do it. But I also had a bit of a stubborn streak in that I didn't want to prove Ken Ham right, that accepting evolution means that you will eventually leave the faith. Again, I am quite sure from seeing other people who have made a similar journey, but not to the same point where I am, that you don't have to leave your faith behind if you don't want. Now, I think you should. I think it doesn't hold up a scrutiny. When I've asked these people about it, uh, some of them point to the moral utility of what they see as Christian teachings. I don't quite see how that relates to the truth of the propositions, but mm -hmm. if that's important enough to them, if their biggest motivator is living a moral life, maybe that's good enough. Another big one is just straight up fallacious apologetics. Uh, you've gone over a lot of that in your podcast already in just nine episodes. They find things like Kalam cosmological argument or ontological arguments to be convincing. I don't. I can tell you exactly why I don't. I think they're mm -hmm. horribly fallacious. They rest on and they rest on bad premises. And even if they were correct, they don't lead you to Christianity being the true religion. But again, I can't speak for anyone else. And I can tell you, I don't find it convincing. Um, but if they do and they're living a good life, otherwise, I'm not going to try to stop. Lars, I was thinking, you said you were going to start a podcast, right? I have thought about it. Are you going to call it Rage Learning? Probably, yes. Oh, that's awesome. If I could, it would be a helpful thing for all those former fundamentalists like myself. Uh, I would like to start a podcast where I bring on experts in a topic where I know at least a little about it and where people who were raised in fundamentalist backgrounds may have been lacking on it. That could be everything from evolutionary biology and geology and paleontology and all those sciences that I really like to things like how to shop for fashionable clothes or sex ed mm -hmm. or American history without the whitewashing. <laughs> yeah. If I can suggest a topic for your podcast, climate change. Oh yeah. Climate change for sure. That's That was actually one of those early on things that I found was not true, right? Because I've been told, well, of course, God wouldn't let humans affect the climate to that kind of degree. And God is going to come and end the world pretty soon anyway with the rapture. So yeah. fuck the climate. But I realized, wait, no, the evidence is quite clear. It's quite clear. So that reminds me, I was reading about climate change earlier today and thinking about fossil fuels. And how does that fit into young earth creationism? Uh, they make up stuff about the flood, almost always any geological phenomenon that actually requires understanding the age and history of the earth. They'll just say, no, it was the flood. They'll point to lab experiments where you can produce petroleum-like chemicals from organic material under pressures and temperatures that you can achieve in a lab that, of course, you can't achieve in the actual earth, but say, oh, look, see, oil can form rapidly. That must be how it happened. The thing you really get to understand with young earth creationism when you've been in it and then debating it for a long time is they aren't actually interested in understanding. Mm -hmm. They are interested in maintaining their beliefs. They think that their faith hinges on the factual truth of Genesis as opposed to any other interpretation. Therefore, they want an answer right now to some pressing question that they have right now. They aren't interested in a comprehensive explanation understanding that'll allow them to make predictions and have an understanding of what they're talking about. They're not petroleum geologists. They don't need to know the actual thermal history of the rocks that are being dug. They just know that oil can form rapidly in a lab. Therefore, all the oil that is in the earth must have formed rapidly. If it allows them to keep believing exactly. what they already believe, then... Just long enough to yeah. keep believing and forget the question that they asked earlier. That's all that Young Earth Creationism yeah. provides. I mean, sometimes it goes to the point where they'll literally contradict themselves in the same article. Uh, one of my favorite examples is there's an article on Answers in Genesis about the amazing, quote unquote, design of giraffes, uh, where they have blood that... Uh, it is kept flowing and not at too high a pressure, even as they bend down their enormous heads. As I'm sure you can think of if you've ever been upside down, blood rushes to your head. Well, when you have a neck that is 10 feet long, that could be a real problem if you don't have a good circulatory system to manage it. And of course, giraffes do. And so they praise the design of the giraffe's neck. But on the very same page, they mention that giraffes do, in fact, have a common ancestor shared with okapis, which do not have long necks. So... That combined with the fact that the giraffe kind that they have on their ark encounter has short necks as well, 
means that they acknowledge that the long neck of a giraffe is literally the result of evolution. Mm -hmm. They'll call it microevolution, of course, but it is literally the result of evolution. But at the same time, they talk about its great design. They don't really care about consistency in any way. They just want to be able to answer the question long enough to forget about it and move on to the next one. Actually, before I get any further, let me just define a few terms here for those who may not be so familiar with them. Evolution by biologist definition is the change in heritable traits in a population over successive generations, which can lead to change and diversification over time. In the way that you look a bit like your mother and a bit like your father, and sometimes more like one than the other, that is the traits that you have inherited from them. And that goes for literally everything alive today and in the past, as far as we know. Every trait that we see was inherited and modified from a previous ancestor. It's this insight that it's not just that, for example, all the land-based vertebrates have two arms, two legs, a head, a tail, and a butt. Hey, that butt is really important. We are defined as deuterostones where the anus develops first. So yeah, one of the earliest stages in your development, every single one of us was literally an asshole. Some of us still are. Exactly. And some of them become president. Oh, hey We'll get there later. We'll get there eventually, yes. Why is microevolution acceptable, but macroevolution isn't? Is it because they don't understand macroevolution or they refuse to accept it? Like you posted an article just recently about the evolution of COVID-19, which I have COVID-19 evolving in my sinuses right now. So I'm on the tail end of it, but yeah, but you posted an article on the evolution of COVID-19 as a, as a thing saying, look, evolution is still going on today. Here's kind of proof of it. And you would say a lot of young earth creationists would accept microevolution and say, oh, that's because it's still a virus. But why do they accept micro, but not macro? It's a combination of ignorance and refusal to examine the evidence. If you look at their claims, they have the Ark Encounter that I just mentioned, where they say that there were about 1,400, I believe the exact number is 1,398 kinds that they have identified uh, that they think are the ancestors of today's species. Now, they limit that strictly to land-breathing vertebrate animals. They think all others would have been just fine somehow in the (laughs) catastrophic destruction of the flood. Just going by what they say here. And all, all the species that they deem to be related to each other are in fact related by common ancestry. So all the, what biologists would call felids, are part of the cat kind. So lions, tigers, cheetahs, cougars, house cats, and they have no problem saying all those evolved from a common ancestor. Now, to any biologist, that is by definition macroevolution. Macroevolution is any evolution which results in one or more new species from an ancestral population. So biologists define microevolution as any change in a population from generation to generation. So as soon as you were born, that's microevolution. The human population changed by the amount that you are different from your parents and from all other humans. And generally that keeps the population the same. That's microevolution. Uh, it can be you know, even more significant than that. If you have humans living in India, for example, uh, have evolved to have darker skin than their relatives in Northern Asia, like China. And that's because they have more UV exposure. Natural selection tends to favor humans with darker skin in those kind of environments. That's still microevolution because they're all still a common breeding population. Macroevolution, though, is when you have one or more new species. Humans, as we know them today, Homo sapiens, are not the only species of human to have ever existed. There have been at least 12 others, with our closest relatives and best known being the Neanderthals. Uh, They are a different species of human that lived alongside our species for over 100,000 years, uh, and it went extinct about 30,000 years ago. Now, they were closely enough related to us that they could still interbreed with us to a limited extent, but they were also different enough that it didn't happen very often, and that we can find their DNA in fossils today that were recent enough and determine that, yes, they were entirely different species from our own. That's evolution. Evolution means that when populations are split off for whatever reason, whether it's because they move to different places or eat different things, or some live high in the trees and some live low to the ground, once they split and continue to microevolve in their own population, eventually that change will build up and produce new species where before you had one ancestral population. 
macro evolution is, as creationists use the term, what we think of as universal common ancestry, the idea that all known life on earth can trace its ancestry back to a single population, probably living between three and 4 billion years ago. Now, it doesn't seem very easy to understand why you are actually related to the bacteria that live in your intestines, but you are. Uh, there are some genes that are shared, genes and cellular function that is shared across literally every known organism. Creationists, of course, will point to this as being quote unquote common design. Macroevolution, as biologists define it, is something that creationists accept too. They, in fact, they posit with their small number of kinds on the ark, macroevolution on a scale and speed that no biologist today would accept as possible. There is no known mechanism for evolution to occur that quickly, but they don't like calling it macroevolution because to them that is a bridge too far. It's basically a word that they don't like to use, right. so they don't use it, even though it does apply to the things that they will say they believe. That makes sense. It's more of like saying, I accept something, but I, yeah, I don't use the term because then it looks like I'm, I'm losing my argument. <laughs> it, it's, it's like a government official saying, I have received a wonderful gift from my friend Bob over here, and I made sure that Bob gets this contract, but I definitely didn't take a bribe. Right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the actual evidence for evolution, because I find this like this is a relatively new venture for me because I, mean, I grew up young earth creationist, the whole nine yards. Can you talk a little bit about just the overall picture of how the evidence points to evolution across like various disciplines like geology, biology, genetics, etc.? Sure. The evidence for evolution is complicated. That's part of why young earth creationists are so good at de denying it. And you do have to understand a fairly wide range of knowledge to really put it all together. Uh, that's why Origin of the Species is several hundred pages thick, but I'll do my best. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, evolution is the change in the heritable traits in a population over successive generations. That's how it's defined now. Why are we so sure this happens? Well, every time an organism reproduces, the offspring is at least slightly different from its parents or parent if it's asexual. And every time there's a difference, some of those differences are going to make it or may make it more or less likely to be able to have offspring itself. In any environment where organisms live, there is going to be a limitation on resources. There might not be as much food as they like, might not be as much water, air, mates, whatever the case, there's some limitation on resources and environments change over time. So what might be desert right now in a million years, maybe covered in ice. Because of these things, the organisms that are able to best reproduce in their environment are not going to be the same ones every generation. So as these new varieties brought about by mutations come about in each generation, some are going to propagate more than others. And over a long enough period of time, that's going to change the overall genetic makeup of the population. A population just being a group of organisms that reproduces that are all part of the same genetic pool. This is fairly obvious. Uh, one of the things that prompted Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace to first think about this is the fact that domestic animals, although clearly related to wild counterparts, are not the same. You can take a population of dogs, for example, and over a few hundred years of breeding, end up with bulldogs and St. Bernard's, both from the same ancestral stock. Don't quote me on that, dog readers. I might be wrong <laughs> on how they're related there. I'm just using them as an example. And so we know that changes can occur and result in fixed changes over time. Because if you mate two St. Bernards together, you're never going to get something that looks like a bulldog. They will always look like another St. Bernard. This is something that is obvious. In fact, there was even this much evolution in the Bible, uh, in the story where Jacob manages to breed spotted and striped goats from Laban's flock. Now, the mechanism they thought worked in the Bible was looking at spotted and striped sticks, yeah. but <laughs> the real story that that's based on was probably just Jacob was a very good sheep breeder and knew how to spot the traits that he wanted mm. to increase in the population. So I never thought about that. As I sometimes point out to creationists, yes, there is a literal account of evolution right in the Bible in Genesis <laughs> chapter 30, if you're curious. Hilarious. That's the process of evolution. The evidence for evolution is not just that we see this happening in every single organism that we've ever looked at, but that if that occurs, then we know that organisms should have traits, things that are inherent to the organism that 
are shared and different in a specific branching pattern across every organism that we look at. And that's, if evolution is true, that's what we should see. And what do we see? Well, that's exactly what's in reality. Carol Linnaeus, or Carolus Linnaeus, the first modern taxonomist in the 1700s, wrote what he called the system of nature, the systema naturae, in that he categorized organisms in much the same way as we do now. He was the first to realize that every organism that he looked at could slot into a group shared with other organisms and that these groups got ever larger as he expanded his scope. So dogs have a lot in common with wolves. Dogs and wolves have a lot in common with foxes. Dogs, wolves, and foxes have a lot in common with bears and they with other mammals and other mammals with reptiles, reptiles with amphibians, reptiles and amphibians and mammals with fish, reptiles, amphibians, mammals, and fish, with worms. And it goes on and on and on. And I'm using common language here to not be too confusing. But each of these has traits that they have in common all with each other that are in common in ever larger groups. This pattern that he noticed, he couldn't explain it. He just thought it was God's system of design. God decided to slot things into groups. But he didn't really have an explanation. He just had a belief about it. And it wasn't until... Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace in 1858, that they both independently hit upon the idea of natural selection as the cause of this, that the environment that an, an, that an organism lives in affects how likely it is to reproduce. And that if there's variation, some will automatically be able to reproduce better than others. So suddenly you went from having this observation to having an explanation for it. And that is what science is all about. Science is all about taking observations and coming up with explanations that you can test. At the same time as Darwin was do- and Wallace were doing their research, a monk named Gregor Mendel was starting research into what we now know of as genetics. He was noticing that traits can be inherited in particular patterns. If you've ever filled out something called a Punnett square, you know the very basics of uh, dominant and recessive traits. And Gregor Mendel was the first to really categorize this. And he did some really excellent experiments over many generations of pea plants to study these things. Unfortunately, um, while Darwin may have been vaguely aware of him, he didn't understand the research well enough to put it together with his ideas of natural selection to understand what was really going on. It wasn't until uh, the 1920s through the 40s that what's known as the modern synthesis of evolution was really formulated to combine the insights of genetics with the understanding of evolution by natural selection that Darwin and Wallace had figured out. Here, of course, was the great opportunity to falsify evolution to show, hey, this is all bullshit. It doesn't have anything to do with reality because now we know once the inheritance of DNA was worked out in the 1950s and 60s, here's the opportunity. Let's show that evolution doesn't work, that DNA does not match up to the pattern that we figure out from just how organisms look. But of course, genetics absolutely clinches it. There's all kinds of fancy genetics work and software work that goes into working out the relatedness of organisms based on their genomes that if evolution were incorrect, you wouldn't be able to do. You would not be able to track the spread of coronavirus if it weren't for evolutionary theory, because we know how inheritance happens. We know how things split off. We know that if Phil got coronavirus and he passes it on to somebody else, if there are any unique mutations in the coronavirus that Phil had, then those are the mutations that are going to be passed on to the person that he spreads it to and nowhere else until they spread it to someone else and they spread it to someone else. Now, if those mutations make it more likely to spread, then guess what? The next variant will be the Phil variant. I'll take credit for that. Yeah. Well, and I think you, you hit on an important term that I was going to mention earlier, the word mutation. Like I remember as a creationist, you know, anytime you heard the word mutation, they would always say mutation equals bad. Yep. But that is not even remotely yeah. true in, in evolutionary biology. The idea of the change, the stronger change survives. Yes. The change in code, the change in ge- yeah. genetic code leads to uh, something that is able to reproduce better, like you mentioned. Like- a works. mutation is just a change. It could be positive, yeah. negative, or neutral. It doesn't have to be right. deleterious. Right. The vast majority of mutations are neutral. They have no Mm -hmm. significant effect on the ability of an organism to reproduce in a given environment. So for example, I have gray eyes. Unless someone happens to find gray eyes especially attractive, that's not going to change my ability to reproduce. Oh, don't get me wrong. The fact that I have gray eyes is because of sexual selection in humans, because humans do tend to find uh, blue or gray eyes a little more attractive than dark brown ones. Hey. For whatever reason. <laughs> Just kidding. And that's, that, it's a recessive trait, and yet it persists because of that.
So can we go back to um, the whole idea of relatedness yeah. and even back to Linnaeus' system of classification? I've heard creationists, young earth creationists like Ken Hoven, say during debates that just because species appear to be related genetically, it does not mean that evolution is true. God could have created each of these species as they are with the genomes that they have, and he just created them with similar genomes, and that the more similar they appear to be, the more similar their genomes are. What would you say to that? I would say you are absolutely right. Any An omnipotent deity could absolutely do that if it wanted to. However, only a deceptive deity would produce the specific pattern of similarities and differences that we see because a supernatural designer has no constraints on time, on resources, on ability, on ingenuity that a human designer has. If I want to use the same type of screw a hundred times when I'm making a car, it's because it's cheaper to order a whole shit ton of the same screw than it is to have a different size screw for every single joint that I'm putting together because I have a limitation on resources and ability. I'm not going to try to design a new way of fastening parts together every time I need to fasten them. However, if I'm omniscient and omnipotent and eternal, I have no such limitations. I could make things any way I wanted. I could make a bird with cactus spines if I wanted, but we don't see any birds with cactus spines. We don't see any frogs with nipples. We don't see any trees with blood. Okay. We we don't see actual common designs. My favorite example with this is spiny mammals. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with porcupines and hedgehogs, but there's also animals called tenrecs, and you may be familiar with echidnas. All four of those groups have spiny hair, where their hair grows very thick and pointy and acts as a defense against predators. If God had designed them, then it would make sense to see that their genetic and developmental ways of growing that spiny hair would be similar and more similar to each other than to anything else, if indeed they were designed with off-the-shelf parts that God had lying around. But that isn't what we see. In every case, they are more closely genetically similar to other animals in their larger groups, porcupines to rodents, uh, hedgehogs to the group that includes moles, tenrecs to other afrotheres, which includes elephants, manatees, and aardvarks, and echidnas to platypuses. And what's more, even if, for whatever reason, God had to make them more physically similar to those groups, he could still have unequivocally shown that they were not actually related genetically because of what's called synonymous codons. Uh, If you've learned anything about genetics, you may know that when the cell is making proteins from DNA, which gets translated to RNA, which then goes through a ribosome to make a protein, every three bases on that molecule produce an amino acid when it goes through a ribosome. Uh, The bases are the A, C's, T's, and G's in DNA or A, C, G, and U in RNA when it gets translated into a protein. For most of the amino acids that get put into a protein, there is more than one set of three bases that will produce it. So if God wanted to show that there was no relation here, he could have easily, even with all the biological constraints in place, let's say this is literally the only way that life could exist, which I'm sure it isn't, but let's just pretend Mm -hmm. that an omnipotent (laughs) God couldn't find any other way to make life. He could still shuffle it around so that the same amino acid is produced with a different set of bases in organisms that in a completely shuffled around manner, the distribution of similarities and differences across the board is always and only what we'd expect if organisms had common ancestry and not if they were designed- Specially created. And specially created in a way to make sure that we would know they're specially created. Because if that's what we observed, if we saw that despite all the other similarities that the synonymous codons were randomly distributed, then we would know that they couldn't possibly share common ancestry, but that isn't what we see. Okay, so can I just summarize that synonymous codon bit and we'll see if I have it right. So an example of synonymous codons is that GGA and GGG both make glycine. So those are synonymous codons. They're different codons, but they encode the same amino acid. All right, so we can map which species use which codons for which amino acids and the more identical codons, not synonymous, identical codons in common between species, the more closely related they are? Yep. Okay, so if God wanted to show design, but still for some reason wanted organisms to look similar, he could have made them with the same genes, but randomly distributed synonymous codons. Right. The other way to look at it is we know right now of only one way for two organisms to share significant parts of their genome, and that's if they share a common ancestry. That is literally 
the basis of paternity testing in court. Well, the same thing applies when we look at other species too. The only way that we know of for them to share DNA is to share common ancestry. And that's exactly what we find. We even find the same mistakes. The reason why you'll get scurvy if you don't take in citrus or vitamin C from some other source is the gene that would make vitamin C in most other mammals doesn't make it in you, but it also doesn't make it in all the other haplorhine primates. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't make it in the same way. There is the same broken part of that gene that is broken in the same or very similarly the same, you know, mutated somewhat since that, since the ancestor, but it's broken in the same way in all of them and only there. Guinea pigs also don't make vitamin C, okay. but their vitamin C gene is broken in a different way, exactly as we'd expect if they independently evolved that same trait. Right. So I think this is the crux of it. What kind of things can you point to that, I don't want to say disprove, but make it extremely unlikely that an omniscient creator especially created every species mm-hmm. is exactly what you just said. Yep. Uh, an omniscient and truthful creator because, hey, right. God could be deceptive. Maybe Loki is the tr- one true God. <laughs> <laughs> We're all screwed. Well, it's like it's like we talked about, I think, in a previous episode where we were talking about, you know, uh, creationists will say that, you know, God created things with age. And the only justification for that is because you were trying to be sneaky. Mm-hmm. Why would you try to make it look like the earth is old if the earth wasn't old? Right. There's no point in doing that unless you're trying to be deceptive or sneaky. So this is the same thing. Yeah. It's worse than that because it's not just mature. As if I popped into existence as a five foot six inch man with a scar over my head where I cracked my skin open playing uh, tag football when I was 13. Right. Uh, Because the earth and the universe have signs of history of events happening, happening at and over various periods, very long periods of time that would all have to be deceptive if... Indeed, it were just made to look, quote unquote, mature. Can you also talk about chromosome two? Ah, yes, that's that. that It's a favorite. Yeah, this goes right back to what we're saying here. The human genome, the DNA inside our the nucleus of every cell that has a nucleus. Uh, when it's dividing, it breaks up into 46 different chromosomes. That's stretches of DNA that group together. We can you know, examine cells under a microscope and sort these out. Uh, that's called karyotyping the cell. Look at the various chromosomes as they're splitting and form them into pairs, longest to shortest. The second longest human chromosome is a special case because scientists realize that humans have 46 chromosomes or 23 pairs, and the other great apes have 48 or 24 pairs. Now, this could have been a major problem for evolution. It could be that we weren't inheriting the same traits and we just happened to look the same. So in the 1980s, they did dye staining on the chromosomes where they mix it with a dye that binds more strongly or weakly to various stretches of DNA based on its chemical composition. And this creates a banding pattern that makes it really easy to tell at least approximately where the various repeated parts are in the DNA. It makes it very distinctive lines makes it easy to tell uh, which chromosome you're looking at. And when they do that with humans, and then they do it with the great apes, the second human chromosome was the only one that didn't line up with one other chromosome on the apes that they were studying, but it does line up with two of them. (laughs) So the human chromosome number two has in the middle, a portion where the genome has back to back, what's called a telomeric sequence. The telomere is a sequence on the end of a chromosome that sometimes is sacrificially lost, if you will, when the cell is dividing Mm -hmm. because the way DNA replication works. And if those telomeric regions get too short, sometimes when they break off, the DNA will come together again at that point and stick two chromosomes together end to end. And we know this happens. We can see it sometimes in humans today that have trouble having babies. It's because one of their chromosomes is stuck together. Interestingly, there was one case, a man in China was born with 44 chromosomes because he had inherited from his inbred family, stuck together chromosomes on both sides, which is almost almost certainly how this happened in our ancestors. Okay. Because if it's not just that these ends of chromosome are stuck together, but they're stuck together back to back, uh-huh. end to end, where these parts of the genome stick together, which is exactly what you'd expect if indeed the ancestors of humans had two chromosomes and they fused together. And that's how we got one chromosome there instead. And it gets even better. In the middle of every chromosome is part called the centromere. Yeah, scientists are really great at naming things, right? It's the center. But it's the part where the chromosomes stick together during cell division um, and also during meiosis where they create the sperm and the eggs. And sure enough, 
there is a second centromere on human chromosome number two, but it's mutated just enough that it doesn't work as a centromere anymore, which again is exactly and only what you'd expect if the ancestors of humans had 48 chromosomes that fused to become 46. Did this happen in one individual and we all descended from that individual? Maybe. What probably happened was very much like what happened in the case of that Chinese man I was telling you about, where one individual had a chromosome fusion, had children, and those children had children with either each other or with their cousins. Yeah, I know. It's a little gross. But what can happen is when you have closer related organisms having offspring together, those unusual traits that would normally prevent them from being able to reproduce, well, Mm. sometimes they stick together. And if you don't end up with crippling genetic disease, you can end up with a new genome set that can only reproduce with closely related sets. And so that Maybe, we don't know, but that might be what prompted the split of our ancestors from the other great apes. That's fascinating. That would make so much sense. It makes sense, but I don't want to say that's how it is because we don't know. <laughs> right. But but in my head, I could see how that happened. In the same way that you have blue eyes, one person about 10,000 years ago had a mutation that we now associate with blue eyes, but they didn't have blue eyes. They had a mutation on one set of their chromosomes a recessive mutation that they passed on to their offspring. But eventually that mutation got shuffled around enough that it appeared in someone on both of their chromosomes. Way down the line. Where they only got the recessive trait and they had beautiful blue eyes and they were the sexiest thing (laughs) since Pamela Anderson. (laughs) Okay, again, I'm offended. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, the the whole genetics thing is... I, I just discovered the genetic component the dna thing i found that book um the making of the fittest i'm not sure if you read that no but i would definitely like to someday it's a very compelling i haven't even finished it yet because i can only read like a few pages at a time before my head just aches because i know so little about genetics yeah and it, it really makes the case for evolution with clear genetic data like you can't argue with it. I mean, you can because people like to argue with everything, but you're, you'd be wrong. Right. If people want to get into more about the genetic proof for evolution, I would definitely recommend that book, The Making of the Fittest by Sean Carroll. So Sean B. Carroll. Sean B. Carroll. Yeah. Just in case there's a different Sean Carroll. There is. He's an astrophysicist and also a very in- interesting science communicator. Yeah. So that's... Um, uh, genetics, I feel like, is like it's the biggest proof of evolution, but there's really no shortage of these evidences. Like, no, there really isn't. We could probably talk another three hours of all the evidence, yeah, that supports evolution. Oh, easily. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a quote from Francis Collins. He's the former head of the Human Genome Project and of the NIH, uh, and also an evangelical Christian who wrote the book *The Language of God* for those who are trying to square evolution with theology. He says, "Yes." Evolution by descent from a common ancestor is clearly true. If there was any lingering doubt about the evidence from the fossil record, the study of DNA provides the strongest possible proof of our relatedness to all other living things. There you go. Very unequivocal, Mm -hmm. very succinct. That's one of my go-to quotes when people are first bringing up the issue because one shows that even devout Christians who are aware of the evidence have to acknowledge it. And two, The people who are most aware of the evidence are extremely unequivocal on where it points. So this is more of a philosophical question a little bit, but why is the understanding of evolution important to us now as a species? Why does it even matter in your opinion? That is a really good question and one which creationists love to pose uh, because they don't tend to notice the results of evolutionary theory in their day-to-day lives. Never mind that there are exactly zero results ever based on creationism. Mm-hmm. No <laughs> predictions. To them, that's not the important part. Probably the biggest application of evolutionary theory to modern life is medicine and disease tracking. The fact that scientists were able to so quickly track and develop a vaccine for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is because of tracking its evolutionary relationships. That's how they're able to know where it's spreading, when it's spreading, what variant you have, how likely it is to come from one place to another, how contagious it is. These are things that are all enabled by the application of evolutionary theory to the spread of a virus. Viruses reproduce very quickly, mutate very easily, and thus evolve very quickly. Another application of evolutionary theory is in psychology. Evolutionary psychology is still kind of in its infancy, and a lot of it is more just-so stories than hard science. But 
understanding where our brains come from, why they act the way they do helps us understand our own behaviors a lot better. Why is it that, you know, men will do stupid things for sex? Well, because we're all silverback gorillas in a sense, and we're trying to thump (laughs) our chests and get that harem so that we can supremacy. (laughs) Yeah. So we can have supremacy. Most primates, as far as we can tell, don't have a whole lot of understanding of, of actual reproduction. Some do. Uh, Baboons, for example, uh, female baboons, when a new male takes over the the pack will go up and purposely mate with the new male so that he thinks that the baby she's already carrying is his. Wow. (laughs) I've heard that story. Even though she's like a month from giving birth, baboons aren't necessarily, at least male baboons, aren't very smart, but (laughs) it's good enough to lie. So kind of the same. uh, The same as it is now. The same as it is now. Males do not understand the female reproductive system as evidenced by them tweeting about the things that they tweet about, you know, so. This is true. Yeah. I posted a, a bunch of these tweets that um, that was horrific. The limited amount of knowledge that current male humans have about female reproduction is staggering. And it's a wonder it that we're even reproducing as a species. Well, given that, you know, we will tend to uh, mate with anything we can. It's not that surprising. <laughs> That's uh, true. I mean, let's face it. Since we're white, we probably have. Uh, one to three percent of our DNA from a different species. Neanderthals. Neanderthals. Uh, if you're Asian, you probably have some Neanderthal and Denisovan, which is a, mm. another different species identified so far only by their DNA. <laughs> um, and there are some uh, Asian populations that have DNA from yet a different human species that we haven't identified yet. Wow. Wait, but we do have Denisovan. Uh, how do you pronounce that? Denisovan. Yes. We do have bones from them, don't we? Only a very few, not enough to identify. There was a molar that was recently discovered. from Yes, and it might be. Denisovan has not yet been positively identified as such. Why did the article not say that it was? Because science articles suck. (laughs) (laughs) Can't trust anything. People who write about science tend to find the most interesting possible conclusion from the data and write as if that is the total certainty, as opposed to the tentative conclusions that real scientists draw. Where should I be looking then? Where are you looking to find these conclusions? And um, Look at the primary literature if you can. Okay. It, many times they will, the, the better science journalists will at least link to the original paper. Uh, you can go there and read that. Read at least the abstract and the conclusion. You don't necessarily need to read every last bit, yeah. especially if it's in a field you're not familiar with. But if you look at that, it should give you at least a good idea of what's going on. Okay. There's medicine or disease tracking, psychology. Uh, there's also uh, internal medicine. Being able to understand the evolutionary nature of our bodies like helps develop better treatments for them. If you're not treating it as a machine to be fixed, but as an organism, a real organism that is, I'm a meat machine. I am not, I'm not a design machine. I'm made of meat. And right. <laughs> when you treat the human body that way, you get better results. And at least personally, really owning my identity as an animal, as a meat machine, as opposed to a ghost piloting this body that somehow is supernaturally imbued with this life force (laughs) has made me feel much more at peace with myself. Yes. I like myself better now that I know I'm not just piloting the meat machine. I am the meat machine. (laughs) Damn it. I love it. I am the meat machine. I need that on a t-shirt. Yeah. I think that should be, that should be a band name. Another band name. Yeah. We're always coming up with so many band names. A lot of great band names. Yeah. So, uh, and finally in paleontology, which is the field I would eventually like to transition to, but it just makes a lot more money. So I'm going to keep saving money for now. It lets you know where to look right? Uh, you probably have heard of the famous fossil Tiktaalik. That was not found by accident. You don't just drop yourself in Northern Canada in the Arctic and expect to find something unless you know what you're looking for. And it was found because uh, paleontologist Neil Shubin and his team were looking for a fossil with those traits. They were expecting that in a place that was a shallow river or lake about 380 million years ago, there should be an animal that has traits that are somewhere in between a fully aquatic fish and a fully terrestrial tetrapod or things that are kind of like modern amphibians. And that is exactly what they found, exactly where and in the strata that they expected to find it. Unless you know what you're talking about, you can't just plop down and find that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Earth's a little too big to, to luck out. I think we've definitely talked about like why evolution is important, how you can for some people reconcile the idea of faith and evolution. And then that there is so much evidence for evolution. If you're open to looking at it, Mm -hmm. that's the bigger thing. I think for a lot of people, when you're stuck in the world of indoctrination, 
the idea of stepping outside of that comfort zone and then being willing to look at the evidence that's the first step to real enlightenment. Yeah. That's definitely something we're trying to encourage. And the amount of knowledge that you have is quite honestly staggering. Oh, it like, is. It's yeah. like, it's awesome. Like your level of knowledge is off the charts. Well, thank you. I, 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 am very good at rage learning. <laughs> what can I say? Um, and Hey, that's one of the nice things about being deconverted. I don't have to give the glory to God. Yeah. I fucking did that. You, you did all on your own. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I would just say, you know, for those still in fundamentalism or even just in religion, for any epistemology that you might want to apply to any idea you have, unless you're willing to consider the possibility that you're wrong and you know what would show that you are wrong, you have no way of knowing that you're right. You might feel like you're right, but you don't know it until you know why you might be wrong. And if you get not proven wrong again and again and again, the way evolution has, or other scientific ideas, the way atomic theory has, the way heliocentrism has, eventually you realize it's true. Those are wise words. Yeah, that's thank awesome. You. That's a really good way to end it. So mm-hmm. thank you for being here. We will yes. thank you for having look me. to have you back for part two. We'll talk about awesome. young earth creationism and why it's not possible. And we'll talk about uh, intelligent design and the difference between intelligent design and young earth creation because those things definitely get conflated sometimes. And I think we're going to talk about something that personal to Lars, what Lars wants to talk about. Yeah, we got a whole list of stuff, which yeah. I, this is going to be awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. Join us next time where we continue to tackle the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? Thanks again for listening and follow us on our social media platforms at Flawed Theology Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And listen to us wherever you find your favorite podcasts and be sure to give us a five-star review. Appreciate it. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next time. Part one and then a Lars intro part two. That sound good? Okay. Off the cuff with nothing written down. So this should be fun. This, should be, this is going to be like outtake fodder. It's going to be like, oh, take nine. <laughs> All right. Let's give a little pause and then let me harness my chi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. It was too quiet. Don't start giggling. You're going to get, you're going to giggle out of control. It was too quiet. I know. I was seeing how long we could keep it awkward. <laughs> you were seeing how long I could go without laughing? Well, mostly I was just trying to keep you in your closet as long as possible. <laughs> I want to leave my closet. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right, here we go.